This Devourer Live, take one, scene one, act one. <laughs> We're back. <laughs> I've been working in the tech industry for eight years before I got up the nerve to create a blog back in 2004. I had a few opinions to share, and despite some nerves, I wrote my first blog post in October of 2004, and I haven't stopped. A few years after that, I got a beta invite to Twitter, and was one of the first 5,000 users on the service. I did it because I wanted to know what my friends were up to at a conference that I was at in Las Vegas in 2007, otherwise I wouldn't have bothered. It didn't occur to me that strangers, strangers would be interested in what I thought in real time. I had no idea what Twitter would become. People started reading my blog, and every day more people would follow me on Twitter. The spicier the post, the more followers I would gain. It became a kind of game for some people. If you had a lot of followers, that meant you were somehow important, had credibility. I thought it was nonsense, so I kept writing edgy posts, for lack of better words, until the day a good friend of mine said I was toxic and full of venom. What? Me? What are you talking about? We're just having some fun here, aren't we? You know me. Why would you say that? I didn't understand the power of my voice. I had to learn social media the hard way. I had to learn the art of social professionalism, if you will. Twitter, blog posts, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube. Posting things in public is powerful. What you do with that power, that's up to you. You have a voice? Now what? That's the topic of today's This Developer's Life. We'll talk about sharing your voice with Ann Juan Simmons and the power of self-discipline. Rob will talk with April Edwards about the power of being an ally and the power of shutting up and listening as opposed to speaking. Politically correct? I don't know. Powerful leverage? Absolutely. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Anwan Simmons. I am a staff engineering manager at GitHub. So like, I'd like to understand when you decided to have a voice and speak up, did, did that come from your parents or did it come from inside you on a random Tuesday? You know, I think it had to come from my parents. I remember very early, and, and this is not voice, but my dad was the kind of human being where we would be driving in Wichita Falls, Texas, which is a small town in North Texas that I'm from. And he would see someone on the side of the road with a disabled vehicle. He would pull over and like, hey, need a hand. And I'm telling you, Scott, the first time that I remember him doing this, I must've been like in third or fourth grade. So I have a twin brother, Antoine Simmons, and we were in the back seat of his LTD, whatever car he was driving in the early eighties. And we're terrified, like, whoa, we're, this is stranger danger. Didn't you tell us, dad, not to talk to strangers and you're pulling over <laughs> to help a stranger? But my dad was very much of the mind that if I have something and someone doesn't have it, then it's my responsibility to the best of my ability to help them. And I think that my dad in particular modeled that. 
And I remember being the kid also on the playground that when the boys were running after the girls and pulling their hair, I would like, no, don't do that. Stop. Why? Stop chasing after these little girls and being the person that would be more protective. And I think that that's a lot of my dad as well. And so I think that as I started going through life, the ability to transition from using maybe my physical body to help someone maybe on the side of the road or on the playground to what I know and what I've learned and just the nuts and bolts of being human and doing my best to be a better human every day. I think that kind of grew into using my voice more in that area. So to answer your question, I think, yeah, very much from my parents, but mostly from my dad. The the, the older I get and the more I think about what I'm doing as a dad and I think about my dad, sometimes I'll be walking and I'll look at them, I'll, I'll see a reflection or I'll just go and I'll, I'll turn and it's me. Yeah. Not him. Right. Or I'll say something and it, he is in my mouth. And it's really blurred the lines between my voice and his. And it makes me wonder how many generations of this person, whoever they are, is in my mouth and his mouth and his dad's mouth. Yeah. I mean, who was the, the alpha release of the handsome male voice? Who was the beta release? Who was, you know, 1.0, right? And I think we all take the next version of whoever our ancestor is and we're the spiritual inheritors of that and we kind of pass it on right and i think that in a lot of ways you know i'm sure my dad did what i did where you you have the big speech ready right the big speech about driving cars or being pulled over by the police or going out on a date and what you do and what you don't do but so much of what my dad taught me was not the big speech it was just watching him it, i'm sure things that he did not even know that i was looking at him that really impressed on me who i am and i'm sure that as fathers ourselves we have to remember that we can have the the pithy speech we can have the kind of pre-generated thoughts that we want to share but in a, in a lot of ways it's just what we model it's what we do and it's usually when you think that they're not looking that they're looking the most intently Sometimes I'm sad that my pithy little speeches don't get more play because I'm like, that's gold, man. Like a couple, a couple of months ago, I was trying to explain to them like how much work was done in the decades before they existed to set them up for success. And I said, your crown has been paid for, put it on. And I paused for this like applause line that never happened. <laughs> exactly. There's, there's a lot of um, conversations on social media about unearned authority where you see somebody with a lot of followers and then there's this, it starts this non-virtuous cycle of, well, I said something and they reacted, therefore it must be good. Therefore the thing that I said must have value. So I'll say more stuff. I'm wondering what you think about that because you have a following. People know you. I do think that there is an unearned authority. And I think that a lot of people have taken they've taken their social media following as an indicator of virtue or of insight. And, and you know, and I, and I don't think that this is new. I think that, you know, we've had professional athletes selling deodorant. We've had actresses selling nutrition packets, right? So it's, it's nothing new. I think it just moves on online. Um, I've never been someone that really cared about the number of followers. I wanted to be true to what I thought was right. And so I've always wanted to be someone who 
did not get validation from the number of retweets or the number of people who liked, but very much from the people who, after I get off stage at a conference or they send me a DM and they're like, wow, you did something that really helped me. And I think that that deep connection where human to human, either they're letting me know that I did something that helped them or I tell them, that's really what I vibe off of. And to me, like, whatever, I'm on my deathbed, but I always kind of think about like, how I think about this on my deathbed, where I look at, pull up my follower account or <laughs> pull up my retweet graph. No, it's gonna, I wanna remember, wow, um, we may talk about a talk that I've been given called Lending Privilege. And uh, someone, when I was in Colombia, in Bogota, after I gave that talk, and this is probably months later said, I started a programming camp for young people in Bogota because of your talk. Like that's meaningful, right? That to me is worth 10,000 likes. Now there's a saying I love at Microsoft, activity does not equal impact. Put another way, motion is not action. Anwan inspired some to teach others how to code and they impacted the lives of hundreds and possibly thousands of people all with the power of a few well-chosen words. What about when you say something and someone disagrees? Like I've, I was, we were having some jokes on Twitter lately the last couple of days about JavaScript and some very weird programming patterns that are coming out. And it, it's young people reinventing the wheel, just doing stuff we did 20 years ago. So then I say something and everyone's like, okay, boomer, old man shakes fist at clouds, you know, so like the whole generational stuff like that. So, but like, I'm still right. I, I tweeted, I'm correct. Like there's not, they can believe I'm not, but I am. But then when they fundamentally disagree, that's the thing that makes me wonder about social media. Like, what do I do with the disagreement? Am I supposed to just go, well, I love that for you. Or that's above me now. Or like, what? Are, what is the correct reaction? Mute, block? There's so many reactions to someone fundamentally disagreeing with something that I know to be true. Yeah, so uh, St. Augustine, I think that's how you say his name. Uh, but Augustine, when he was faced with this, when it came to disagreements about theological principles, he said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. And what he meant to say was that, look, there are certain core concepts that we should all agree on. Abusing other people, we should all agree is wrong. Stealing from other people and not giving them credit is wrong. But there are also things that are debatable. How do you name your variables or how do you approach this particular coding pattern or how do you even do engineering? There should be liberty. We can disagree, but I can, uh, I can understand where you're coming from. And yes, I can know that I'm right. And that if you keep coding long enough, you're going to see that I'm right. But we should have liberty. But in all things charity, we should have love overall. So I think the older I get, I really try to model that kind of three-part way of looking at things. Whereas there are certain things like I'm not going to budge. Like I'm not going to ever budge on how we should treat uh, underrepresented people in tech, right? That we should be supportive. We should help to lift them up. We should be welcoming I'm not going to budge on a few things, but there's lots of things where you believe something that I don't. And like, that's okay. The world's not going to end, right? Um, that's a feature, not a bug that we disagree. 
in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. I think the challenge is when we disagree on essentials, and that's where I feel like an essential is an essential truth. Like one can argue about diversity, but can you argue about inclusion? And then you get diversity for free. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another great St. Augustine quote is, the truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. Let the lion loose. It will defend itself. Mm-hmm. I wonder about that, though, given the way that social media is going right now. I don't think that they thought about fake news and uh, things that are anti-truth. Uh, the lion is having a little trouble defending itself right now. Let the lion loose. <laughs> I think I've had a problem with that in the past where I feel the need to roar because an essential, as you put it, was being trampled. Um, you know, It's okay to disagree, but I think it takes extraordinary skill and patience to not roar when you feel the truth is at stake. I, yeah, I think that during troubled times, uh, during tribulations, people will feel that maybe the truth is being threatened at every turn. Uh, and seeing things written down in black and white, like on Facebook or Twitter, you know, can carry more weight than maybe hearing someone yelling unhinged on a street corner. I think the question that you and others need to ask themselves is, do I really need to roar about this? When you talk about inclusion, can you really say that we welcome everyone or can we say that, look, we can tolerate everything except for intolerance? We can tolerate everything except for the intolerant. And the Dutch. We hate the Dutch. (laughs) And the Dutch. That's great. You know, okay, so that sounds, that right there sounds like an essential to me, like not tolerating intolerance. Well, it's actually from Austin Powers. I, I, I don't like people who are intolerant of other people's cultures. And the Dutch. <laughs> and the Dutch. And the Dutch. No, we yes. love the Dutch. But intolerance is a thing that we should be roaring about, right? Like it's a paradox, right? You have to tolerate everything and everyone, uh, you know, and give them charity, as St. Augustine would say, except for the people who are intolerant. And there's a lot of them. Yeah. And I think the trouble comes in when you flag someone, right? You flag someone else as intolerant when they're just disagreeing with you. I think that's a slippery slope. And Anwan is going to talk about just that. Yes. When people um, are talking about um, harm, when people are talking about intolerance, then yes, it does become harder. Uh, Absolutely. But you know, that's just part of the challenge of life, right? I think that giving a voice to the voiceless is one, understanding that you have a voice, but then two, understanding the ways that you can use your voice to serve others and not just yourself. Like you early on, I very much learned that people liked how I explained things, that I had what most people would consider to be like a pleasant speaking voice. And that served me well in leading inch teams and being a public speaker and doing all these things. But I began to realize that, yes, I could do a lot with this voice, but I can also figure out outside of myself, what can I do to highlight others? And, you know, that can be at work, seeing people that are being passed over, even though they're doing the work and figuring out why, and then finding ways to put a spotlight on their work. Or it could be as simple as something that I try to do that whenever I retweet someone on Twitter or, whatever social platform. I try to just do like the bare retweet and not add my own per- my own personal thoughts about that. Like, no, I'm just gonna retweet this thing that this person said, right? I'm gonna use my platform 
to amplify their voice, but not add my own voice on top. So like little small things like that are ways that you can use your voice, whether that's your spoken voice or your social media voice to uplift and hopefully enrich the experience of others and do it in a way that is ideally um, selfless, uh, not to serve what you wanna do, but to serve that other person's good. There's, an, there's a funny argument going on, on on Mastodon right now, which is like the Fediverse version of Twitter, where they don't allow quote tweets. So you just called out, like, I can just retweet, and I'm using retweet the way we use Kleenex to refer to tissue, right? So tweeting and tw posting whatever you want, whatever social media you decide to use. So to, to quote tweet is to literally amplify, but add an addendum to add your opinion, to potentially dunk on the idea. Exactly. But to simply amplify it is what they call it boosting in, exactly. the, in the federated universe and the Fediverse. And there's no commentary allowed. Yeah. That's an interesting, I don't know if I think it's good or bad, but I think it's a decision that speaks directly to what you just said. Just simply boost it. Absolutely. And, and, and I think that, um, that, that, that just gets beyond the, the ego, right? I mean, come almost endemic to social media is just the ego, right? Oh, look at me. Look at what I have to say. Here's what I have to say. And I think that if you can find ways to disconnect the ego from the tweet or from the thread or from the whatever, then I think that you can, in a lot of ways, just purely get out of the way of the person. And like to me, this is really important for people who don't look like me, right? I am a typical straight uh, male American. And when I can find someone from the queer community, when I can find someone from the differently able community, we can find someone from different countries. Like that's when I really think it's important for me to get out of the way and amplify someone who may be differently gendered from me, differently abled from me, differently located from me. Because I think that that's when you're truly laying into, I want to, to your point, boost. I want to boost you, not to boost you to build myself on top of your boost, but to boost you because I want other people to hear what you have to say without me being the editor. I have found that lending your voice often means getting out of the way. Just point towards someone else who's trying to be heard. Adding your words on top of theirs can in some ways take credit for their thought, as if it was you that had also had the idea, when in reality it might have just occurred to you when you read their words. So Anil Dash, famous blogger, he's been blogging for 25 plus years, one of the first bloggers. Yeah. Um, you know, he famously spent an entire year only retweeting women. That's right. I think that's a, gr oh, what a great idea. I probably got that from him, right? Um, I yeah. think he came, to, he came to Blogging While Brown. I want to yeah, say, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, didn't he? Yeah, yeah I think he was there. And I think, you know, but he, he's he's known for trying experiments like this. That's a very nail thing to do. And like, and there were two reactions to it. Wow, you're excluding men. I was like, no, just for a year, I'm just going to follow and retweet women because that would be a great way to boost their voices. Exactly. And other people were like losing their minds and it was literally flat, flat down the middle. What a great idea. What a horrible idea. And I was like, what, what, how can such a obvious and cool thing be divisive? You've never seen, I've never seen you directly connect your brain to social media. It's always very, not calculated isn't the right word, intentional. I've, I've always had a deep appreciation for the written word, for the spoken word, 
you know, I mean, going back to the civil rights movement, right? Some of the great speakers, obviously Dr. King, even Medgar Edwards, Malcolm X, so many people use their voice to literally make life better for people like me, all through speaking. And so I've always been aware of what you can do with words and what you can, and also I've been aware of the damage that you can do with words. And so very much, I think I bring that to how I engage online. I very much want to use this amazing tool that we call the the word and very much use it in a way that when I when I deploy my voice, whether again, that's either speaking or written, I, I'm always intentional about what I do with it. It's almost like knowing that you have, um, let's say you have a really powerful sports car that has all this horsepower when you're driving it, you're very much aware that you can do fun things, but also do very damaging things. And I think that that just always has informed how I present myself online. But I also have to say that I'm inclusive in that I love ratchetness, right? I mean, I don't know if I've told you about this, but like, I love a little spicy take every now and then. I'm not probably gonna give it, but I will very much like indulge and engage and consume it like all day long, right? This is something I think about a lot. Like, how can I be authentic sharing what I find to be true while at the same time doing no harm, as Anne one would say? One of my favorite writers is Stephen King, and I've read his book on writing, I can't tell you how many times. And one of his quotes resonated with me, and I'll just read it to you here. It is, if you expect to succeed as a writer, rudeness should be the second to last of your concerns. The least of all should be polite society and what it expects. If you intend to write as truthfully as you can, your days as a member of polite society are numbered anyway. What do you think? That's a great quote, but we're not writing the great American novel. I mean, some of us are, but social media is not the stand or the dark tower gunslinger. It is a place for people to share their experiences and their ideas. Yeah, exactly. And this is something I've had to learn over time. We learned manners growing up, right? Please, thank you, you're welcome. At work, we learn professionalism. And we do these things as a society because if we don't, it's chaos. We revert to living in caves and using windows. Okay, all kidding aside, this actually reminds me of taking your son Zenzo to Tivoli Garden in Copenhagen. That's right. We were at the Copenhagen Developers Festival and I had to work on my keynote and you happily kidnapped my kid. <laughs> who was very happy to be stolen at the time. Yeah, you know, you know what? He's, Zenzo's, Zenzo's an awesome kid and Mo did a great job raising him. <laughs> One thing that I loved, however, is that he kept calling me Mr. Rob. And I said to him the second time that he did it, you know, you can just call me Rob. And he explained to me that you and Mo made it clear to him the rules, which are. <laughs> yeah. It is. I mean, I've called him sir since he was an infant. That's right. And people used to tease me calling a uh, a toddler sir. Uh, now he is an 18-year-old toddler. But yeah, I mean, Mr. Dr. Mrs., it's a simple act of respect that says uh, a lot about a person. And I hopefully... Uh, got him set straight. And you remember this moment and you remember how he interacted with you. So hopefully that portrayed him in a good light. Absolutely. And it was such a fun time. And say hi to both your kids for me. They're both just amazing. It's a, it's a razor's edge. So then when your voice has this power, words have this power, you know, I'm not a fan of the word cancel culture, but I certainly don't want to be the one that has to apologize over a tweet. So then the question is, do you self-censor? Yeah. You preempt the apology. 
So like I do, obviously, I very much, I have a do no harm kind of clause to my uh, social media profile and that I, I never want to do harm, even if it's unintentional. Uh, I have like this built-in filter where I just want to make sure that I'm always tacking toward care to avoid harm. I also want people to not be afraid to engage me, right? Because I think that you can also filter people out. And I think that I have a very strong inclusion streak in me. And I think if I was more robust in broadcasting my thoughts, then that would have never happened. That we often forget the value of understanding why someone believes what they believe. And this could be because this person came from a certain background. It could be this person went through some kind of trauma. I think that's interesting. Like, I want to know more about that. To me, like, that's more important than you and I agreeing. It's understanding your story. And I think that if I had been more demonstrative in what I believe, I would have missed out on so many great stories. My thanks to Anwan Simmons for talking to me today. If you want to see his talk on lending privilege, you can find a video at anwansimmons.com. That's A-N-J-U-A-N Simmons.com, which is also linked to in the show notes. One of my favorite quotes comes from Hermeticism. As within, so without. As above, so below. As the universe, so the soul. The idea being that the divine is already within us, and it's our job to basically let it out, creating a world based on who we are on the inside. A little lofty, but I like it. I kept thinking about that quote when talking to our next guest. I'm April Edwards. I'm a senior developer advocate at GitHub, and I've been in tech for 24 years. As you're about to hear, April's a force of nature. And I know it's a cliche. I know. I hate cliches. But that is the best description I can give for April. She is a force of nature. She's an athlete, a speaker, former U.S. Marine officer, DevOps manager at GitHub. She does Ironman triathlons for fun. Where does April's within come from? I would say I was probably born with it plus taught it, right? We always talk about nature versus nurture. What are we taught versus what are we innately born with? Looking at my genetic lineage, my parents are two very strong personalities. Um, my mother was a, a force to be reckoned with. And after she passed away, uh, I remember standing in her house uh, with my stepdad and it was dead silent and the house was empty and it was bizarre. And now I, that's when it, it clicked. My mother was that force of nature and I inherited that. I learned that behavior from her and my father as well. He has quite a presence with people. Both are very good in working with people, speaking to people. Um, and I think some things I learned from my parents. One thing I learned from my parents as a child was I'm April. I was never raised to be a girl. I was never raised to be a boy. It was just, you can do whatever it is you want to do. And they never told me no. I mean, they did, but in the sense of like doing new things and trying new things. And my father was really good at teaching me to play with the boys, meaning I would learn to wrestle. I played American football. And I think you just learn not to take anyone's crap. And I think that developed over time in the environment I was brought up in. And then I went into the military in the U.S. and went into officer training in the Marine Corps. 
and you have to learn to be decisive. So I think all those things, all those lessons in my life, playing sports, learning to play with the boys, not take their crap physically, emotionally, verbally on sports teams when you're the only girl really helped. My Both my parents encouraged me to be strong and independent. And then having to be independent and make life altering decisions in the military all brought that together. Um, and I think I, it's tough because I live in a culture in the UK where it is hard to be that. And I have to really almost tamper that down. I have to be careful. I have to be measured because I'm in a different culture than what I grew up in. But I've learned to adapt as I need to. And I remember from the late Abel Wang, him and I were having lunch one day and um, we were sitting at the Microsoft campus in Redmond and he goes, you can swim with the sharks. Our friend Abel Wang passed away this last year and we all miss him terribly. He reminded us to never accept the defaults. And Abel took the time to boost April and get out of her way like all good managers should. Now, swimming isn't the only good thing April's good at. She's actually good at everything. And she's good at running and biking, and she participates in events like the Women of Ironman. If you don't know, an Ironman event consists of three races in one, running a full marathon, swimming 2.4 miles, and riding a bike for another 118 miles, which are three things that I'm extraordinarily bad at, as most of my injuries are Netflix-related. So... I think when I started sports, when I started running, I was not a runner. And I say I played sports and, you know, I talked about that growing up. I played ice hockey, soccer or football, depending what country you're in, uh, basketball, softball, um, sports that you kind of ran in, but I wasn't a runner. And a friend of mine once told me, you know, you should go run this half marathon. And being 18 years old, you're like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. I did it. I literally went to the gym on a Wednesday, ran 13 miles on a treadmill and then ran the half marathon the weekend uh, like that next weekend. Uh, I was 18 for the record. Like when you're 18, you're invincible. Your body can do anything when you're 18. <laughs> and I ran an hour and 41 minute half marathon, my fastest ever. I cannot run one that fast to this time, but I ran this half marathon. So in my brain, that's the level I set. And then throughout college, I kind of ran, I had to, I ran cause I was forced to in the military, right? Cause I went to officer school. So that was during college or university. Um, and then in, God, what year was it? 2012, I lost a bet about doing a triathlon. I had talked about it. So I had kind of ran like you, I, I kind of owned a bike at one time and I tried the road cycling thing. I was like, I'm never going to wear Lycra and look like one of those people. And now I live in Lycra. So I never say never. Right. Um, <laughs> so I started on this journey and everything hurt when I started. And I think it's about learning what your limits are what is good pain and is it discomfort or is it pain and that's about learning about your body so you were talking about you know prepping for these these rides and being stiff as a bore in the morning it's learning about your body and what it can do and pushing those limits and i lost a bet in 2012 i did my first triathlon um i dropped f-bombs around the whole damn course like the water was cold it was in colorado it was at 9,000 feet of altitude it was in a mountain lake like light bulb idea right let's let's do your first triathlon in somewhere at altitude where you can't breathe anyways um <laughs> i finished it and then i was like hey i'm gonna sign up for another one because endorphins are amazing um and then that that carried me into doing half ironmans and other distances then i moved to the uk and i think you know growing up playing sports you again, being young, young is great. Being youthful is great. I started having some female issues when I was a teenager. 
As if training for an Ironman isn't hard enough, April has had to deal with consistent, intense pain in her lower abdomen for the last, well, forever, really. The story is intense and deserves a show of its own. With April's permission, I'm just going to summarize that she went through utter hell that resulted in her getting a hysterectomy. Our bodies have a voice of their own. Let us know when we're pushing a little too hard. So what do you do when your body is shouting at you, but you need to keep going? People don't always know the difference between discomfort and pain. And I think sometimes the achievement of getting your butt out the door, getting rid of the excuses, and just doing it is important. And I think this is twofold. So David Coggins, former Navy SEAL. Um, you can't hurt me. Can't hurt me, won't stop, can't stop. You know, he tells you to suck it up, right? And you, you, you actually just have to, you have to suck it up. And people that have other problems in their lives, other challenges, I look at them and go, how the hell do they do that? How do, how do you get out of bed in the morning, right? Um, but we all have something in our life and you just learn to sometimes you just got to get up and tackle the day. And, and I think there are some days I did better than others. And I think going back to like work, part of the symptom, one of the symptoms I had was brain fog. Holy crap. That's a real thing. Like I could just stare at my screen. I couldn't write code. I couldn't develop content. I couldn't write a blog. My brain just didn't work and I didn't get it. I was like, why do I feel this way? No matter how much coffee I took on or anything. And we all have days like that, but that went on for weeks and months of just like, I just can't function. So I think you just learn to put one foot in front of the other and you have to try. And I think trying is half the battle. And I think triathlon has taught me what is discomfort. And I think, you know, David Coggins will say, you know, we're too weak as a society and you know, there's debate for that. Um, but I had to take that on board. I had to tell myself I'm being too weak and I just had to get out of bed and I just had to make the attempt. And if, you know, I. You hear people, actually I was reading a, a thread the other day on Reddit with a person who's like, I did a half Ironman, but failed four miles from the end on the run and I failed. I was like, you didn't fail. You got further than someone who's sitting on their sofa, someone who didn't get out the door that morning. So I think one is bigger than zero. Just do one. That literally for me could be one push up. you know, one minute, one mile, one hour. And I know one hour sounds excessive, but just one, right? So you did a 60 mile bike ride on your weekend. 60 miles for me, depending on the terrain, weather and all that, could be anywhere from four hours, three and a half hours, sometimes longer on really hilly terrain. But if I just did one hour of riding or one minute of walking, just one is better than none. So I think for me, that's the mindset I had to keep. One is better than none. The famous talk show host, Dick Cavett, said 80% of success and life is just showing up. It's a pithy quote to be sure, but the act of showing up can be extremely difficult for a lot of people. Just getting out of bed in the morning when you're depressed and it's dark outside. Putting on your shoes to take your dog for a walk. The battle is won with the first step you take. And I think this also applies to social issues. How do you impact the lives of others and elevate their voices? You start by showing up. You don't have to tell the entire world what you're doing, you don't have to tweet about it or take pictures of your food on Instagram, but you do have to be there. April and I were talking about her training program for Ironman races when she shared with me the details of the pain that she endured for years. Acute, ongoing, no answers that she could find. She wrote about it on her blog, and if you want to read more, the link is in the show notes. 
When our friends are sick or in pain, we can often make them feel better by calling them or showing up with a meal. That part is obvious. But as a man, how do you show up for women who are dealing with female health issues? It's not something that was ever discussed in my house when I was growing up. And I think that should change. The reason why we're talking about this sensitive topic is because one is as a male, you can be an ally and understanding and empathetic to women, whether that's your partner, your friends or your colleagues um, or anyone else around you. And the reason why I'm bringing it to the forefront is because it does impact our work. It impacts how we function. It impacts how we do things. And there's so little research for women's health and and it is hard to have allies because women feel they're alone. I had very few people to talk to. I was spending my time bouncing between doctors and I didn't feel I had support personally either. And that's tough. So how do we make this better? And, and, and I also have spoken to other women who are like, I'm having a lot of problems. Oh my God, I love reading your blog because I see the light, the end of the tunnel. I can see a path. And I hope that every other woman's journey is shorter than mine. They didn't have to go through years of pain and doctors and stupidity of men saying you'll be fine. Um, but also it impacts how we do our day-to-day jobs. And I have not had children. I cannot comment what it's like. Um, I've had lots of friends that have had children. Um, so there are changes in the female body. And I think the thing why we should talk about it is the female body changes more than the male body throughout life. Um, our hormones impact our shape, how we function a lot more than a man's does. Um, and there was an artist years ago that did a fantastic uh, exhibit at an art institute that took photos of women naked. And I don't mean in obscene ways, just literally mm-hmm. how the body changes through time. Men's bodies don't change as much as that. And mm-hmm. it is still an unknown science. So it needs to be brought to the forefront to understand it, but then to also how we can support each other because we're all human. Do I come up to you and ask you if I can get you something? What, you know, what, what does support look like at that moment? I think when you ask us if we're okay, if you say, are you okay? I'm going to snap. I'd say, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. I'm fine. Yes. Of course I am. I'm going to give you the canned answer. Um, sometimes it's, can I get you anything? Would you like a cup of tea? Or can I do something for you? And I'm not good at accepting help, but that in my head stops me to go, actually, yeah, a cup of coffee would be amazing because you may not know what's happening, but I might actually need that cup of tea or I might need to stop doing what I'm doing and like change position, go somewhere, go for a walk, breathe, take 20 seconds to just breathe and deal with whatever. Um, you know, I think just asking, how can you help? And, um, I think that's always a good start. And I think patience, and and this is more with a significant other than with a stranger and and you and I know each other, so we're not strangers, but always just saying, Hey, how can I help? Can I do something for you? My mom always said to me, we didn't discuss these things. Like we just didn't discuss it. Your parents were like, you know, it just, it wasn't spoken about. And now that I live in the UK, there are definitely people in our generation, Rob, that still don't talk about it and won't talk about it. And I have friends that are in their forties hitting menopause going like in their fifties, like we're not talking about it. And I would say most friends I keep are pretty okay about it, but they don't talk about outside of a circle. Um, it's still quite a hush topic. And I think we just have to make it not embarrassing. Many thanks to April for sharing her stories with us. Uh, if you want to learn more about her training and the Ironman races that she does, 
You can read her blog at peeifyouwanttogofaster.com. A link is in the show notes. Uh, That expression, well, it has to do with racing. Thanks, April. You're an inspiration. It is surprising how effective the art of shutting up can be. You don't need to keep yourself from engaging, just enraging. Don't send someone to sleep with a bitter taste of you. Don't give bile a permalink. Hearing someone pause and use words like intentional or differently enabled might sound manufactured as if the person speaking is trying to check off some boxes. But what if those people are going out of their way to show you respect? Being socially professional, if you will. If you can remember 400 Pokemon, you can certainly remember two or three pronouns. Manners and social contracts are a part of every civilization going back centuries. Your strong, kind voice can turn into a quiet roar. It just takes practice and a little effort. Polarize or galvanize. It's your voice to leverage. Thanks for listening to This Developer's Life. And yes, we will be back soon. Wanted to end the show today on a personal note. This episode recorded eight years after our last one. You know, it wouldn't exist without Scott mentioning and once talked to me about lending privilege a few months ago. Some of you might be wondering why we haven't put out a show over the last eight years, and the answer is simply put, hi, it's me. I'm the problem. Long story short, I wanted to make room in the tech podcast world for other voices. It seemed to me the right thing to do at the time. After listening to Anwan's talk, well, it inspired me to pick things up again, to elevate other voices, helping them tell their stories. Scott and I have an amazing platform for this, and that's what this podcast has always been about. And that's what I want it to always be. Anwan, from me to you, I can't thank you enough. This episode and all the future episodes I hope to make wouldn't exist without you and your thoughts. What about you out there listening to this in your car, on a walk, on a plane? What would it feel like to change someone else's life by measuring your words, stepping aside, being a little more intentional? Might be fun to find out. Thanks again for listening. 